The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Father, what a, what a glorious day. What a glorious time of year to, to celebrate the incarnation of your Son. Lord, may we have hearts filled with awe and worship. Lord, give us eyes to see this morning, ears to hear what you have for us from your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit fill us and make us witnesses to the power of Jesus and his salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts 4. We're going to be covering a large section here. Uh, Acts 4.32 and then on into chapter 5, ending with verse 11. Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. 
This is God's word. Great grace and then great fear. The generosity of the saints and then the example of Barnabas and then the fear of God as Ananias and Sapphira are immediately struck dead for their deceit. This is Acts. Remember, New Testament, the birth of the church, and our God is the same. He is a God of mercy and grace, and he is forever holy, 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 unchanging in his perfection. And this New Testament example should discourage anyone from thinking that there's a difference between that God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. Remember that God revealed himself in the Old Testament. Remember when he revealed himself to Moses. And how did he reveal himself? This long name is how he revealed himself, which is the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is God. This is who he's revealed himself to be. If God were not, think of it, if God were not merciful, if he were not gracious, then Adam and Eve would have received what Ananias and Sapphira did. And we wouldn't be here. God is mercy. God is justice. And we see how they come together in that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus, he gave Jesus to pay the price. This is what we're celebrating. He gave Jesus to pay the price, the, the justice that we deserve. What mercy. So why, when we read this, why this, this immediate execution? It seems uh, to our 21st century minds a bit harsh, doesn't it? Harsh because we don't see these kinds of things happening today. Yet God is God. He is the same. We don't see it, though we deserve this. Harsh because we take, well, probably because we take grace for granted. Thinking this patience and mercy of God is what we actually deserve. So unmerited favor is expected and we turn grace on its head and we miss the glory of God. So yes, God is holy, but but why do we see this why don't we see this same kind of holy discipline today? As the think of this, as the healing of the man who was born lame, as that that prefigured something. It prefigured a day to come. A day with no more pain and sorrow, no more disability and death, no, no 
None of the suffering that we endure today. Resurrected bodies. All will be well. So this judgment of Ananias and Sapphira, it prefigures something as well. It gives a glimpse of the terrible day of the Lord. The great and awesome day of the Lord. When all will stand before a holy God and will be justly judged. And all who are in Christ have mercy and forgiveness But the fear of the Lord and his holiness will cause us to tremble and be in awe at who he is. This event created those kinds of reactions and it prefigures a day to come. Ananias and Sapphira, they remind us of other judgments. Judgments like, remember Nadab and Abihu? Who got creative with their worship. God cares about how he's worshipped. Offering an improper fire upon God's altar. Dead. Remember Uzzah. Who simply reached out to steady God's ark. And he's immediately struck dead. What all of these have in common is that they occurred at times of important new beginnings of God's people. Pentecost was just that. It was a new beginning. The new covenant, a new era. And so God establishes at the start of this new beginning how seriously he considers the purity of his relationship with his new covenant people. God is making it very clear that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we need to worship him and relate to him in a way that's mindful of this. It's true today. We don't see displays like this today, but he makes it clear at the beginning of this new era of the church that he is forever the same. He is holy. He is to be feared. The church is precious to him. And he's communicating that he's not, he's not a casual buddy. He's the unchanging God. And oh, if we err in the 21st century, we treat him like a buddy. We're casual. God is holy. The first part of our text, it gives us a glimpse, really, of of this ideal church. Don't you read it and just think, that is beautiful. One that we should desire today. People who think above and beyond the challenges of the circumstances of life. Who value the reality of Jesus more than their own comfort. Who who pray for boldness to keep pressing on more than praying for their own protection. People who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the result in verse 33 is said that they have great grace. Great grace and great power in their witness. They were not divided over personal preferences. But in verse 32 are said 
to be of one heart and soul. I love that phrase. One heart and soul. That's what we're after. To put it another way, people who have this, this deep friendship, a deep connection in Christ, a common purpose that impacts every decision that we make. Their common purpose was Jesus, worshiping him, communing with him in prayer, learning about him from the apostles' teachings, telling others why he came and what he did and that there's salvation in him and him alone. And their common purpose or, or unity led them to function in a way that was mindful of each other. Beautiful. Christ-like. So when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. When one part of the body rejoices, we all rejoice. They're not simply behaving, functioning as individual parts, but a connected body. And thus... This is what led them to say, whatever I have, it's for you. What an incredible attitude. Life is bigger than me. There's a special care and love within the church because the church exists as a witness to Jesus and his gospel. It's not about programs. It's not about Morality, it's not about therapy. We are a witness of Jesus and his gospel. People ought to look at us and how we treat and love one another and say, that reminds me of Jesus. This is the power of the witness that they have. Martin Lloyd Jones called this section of Acts. And this kind of behavior, genuine Christianity. And this genuine Christianity is especially hard with a a Western individualistic mindset. It's contrary to our cultural messages of stand up for yourself. Be assertive. Get what you want before someone else gets it. Black Friday, after all, right? That's the mentality. You can do Black Friday in a godly way, I'm sure. But when we think of Black Friday, what do we think of? We think of people people that don't want the best for someone else. They want it for themselves. Even if you have to cut in line, push and shove, walk over someone to get it, because my little Johnny needs to be happy at Christmas, and I need to get a good deal. And if we don't counter this with genuine Christianity, then it's, it's way too easy to take a wonderful celebration like Christmas and turn it into antichrist, selfishness, a selfish display. How ironic to be self-centered in a season that celebrates Jesus who emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant. By being born in the likeness of men. This is the spirit of the early church. Selfless. Christ-like sacrifice for the sake of others. So, how about we 
Uh, we're going to be sending out an email uh, encouraging you to sell all of the things that you have. We're going to pull it together and start a commune. Sound good? Uh, if we were living under their circumstances, I hope we'd do that. But we're not. Genuine Christianity is not a commune. It's a change of heart and soul. It's great grace and power with an attitude that resembles Jesus. And as I pointed out some weeks ago, I do see the same kind of generosity in your giving. Giving that helps people who are needy and hurting, families within our own church, local ministries, the various missionaries that we want to encourage and help in their witness for Jesus. You are partners in the gospel with them through your giving. So when we look at this Acts 4 ideal, you know, it'd be helpful to understand some of their particular needs, their circumstances. What led them to respond with such radical, selfless love? First of all, what led them, led to such a, we should ask, what led to the gathering in Jerusalem in the first place, this massive gathering. Well, remember, many Jews, they were dispersed into foreign lands, and they gathered to Jerusalem for Passover, and then for the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. So there were a lot of people there at the time of Pentecost. There were many visitors from various nations, and this is the miracle of Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit filled the disciples. They began to speak in the native tongues of these many people who had gathered. And they're, they're thinking, what a miraculous thing. These Galileans are speaking in my language of the mighty works of God. And 3,000 souls are saved after Peter preaches. So all of these people from many nations were gathered in Jerusalem. And something incredible happens. A miracle happens. There's a new beginning. They're excited. They're not about to leave and head home because clearly God is doing something. Peter, he preaches this fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, the beginning of a new era where the Holy Spirit would indwell all of God's people. It's the birth of his church. It's too exciting to just turn around and head home and Think of it, there's no church for them to return to. This is it. This is the starting point. Just as Jesus said, beginning with Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. The people stayed. That's part of the circumstance that they faced. Some of these people, they're just fishermen, peasants from Galilee. And they have no means of employment here in Jerusalem. All of this created a larger than normal population of dependence. And when you combine this with, with the rising persecution, what's going to be the attitude of the local employers? They're going to be too fearful to hire any of these Christians, lest they endure persecution. So you have all of these new Christians excited, staying unemployed, unemployable, needy, dependents. And then you have 
Christians, local Christians, who have some level of means, who have some property, and they are with these new brothers and sisters who have nothing. And out of love and unity, they decide to sell some of their property in order to meet the needs of others. It wasn't obviously forced communism. It wasn't coercion. It wasn't theft. It was love. It was a bold love that is, answer, is an answer to their prayers earlier. Lord, give us boldness. Okay, here you go. And they sell their properties. It's described in verse 33 as a, as a powerful testimony of the great grace of God. So here in Acts 4, we have a unique circumstance that created a great need. And because great grace was upon them all, there was not a needy person among Incredible. That's an incredible statement. Think of all the thousands of people and the result of their generosity. There's not a needy person among them. Wow. The church was acting like Jesus. A true spirit of Christmas as they care for each other with a common purpose. It's not our circumstance today. But we should have, what we should have is a similar unity. You don't have to sell your stuff. We're not dealing with their circumstance. We did deal with um, raising funds for a need for a car. And you gave generously. So that was the circumstance. But what we should have in this genuine Christianity is a unity. A selflessness. It's the mindset. It's the godly attitude of love and care for one another. It's what it means to glorify God. To resemble him in our actions. Realizing that, that well, God has provided for me. I'm going to help provide for them. So when you're... Okay, bring it down to parents and children. When your children are fighting over stuff... Over the, over the new Christmas stuff to come. And they don't want to share. It's not only annoying and disappointing. But the real concern is, it's contrary to how God is. That's the real point. Likewise, we as adults. Adults who refuse to forgive a person that seeks our forgiveness. When we hold a grudge instead of patiently, graciously overlooking an offense. When we react in pride instead of humility. When we neglect uh, or negatively judge a person based on their disability or income or perceived importance in society. None of this resembles God and how he's been toward us. This is what it means to glorify God. I want to I want to give people a picture of what he's like. And so when we act contrary to this, that's the problem. That's the issue. We should be of one heart. There should be a, a deep friendship because we're one in Christ. There should be a oneness of soul or mind that impacts how we care for each other. How we give, how we 
show hospitality, how we use the finances and the abilities that God has blessed us with for the sake of others, for the sake of worship, for the sake of his glory. This is the ideal for Christ's church as we see in Acts 4. And Luke, what we really have here are two examples. The positive example of Barnabas. Ah, Barnabas. I love that this is the name the apostles gave him. The text tells us that his real name is Joseph. But because of his actions, because of who he was, because he was continually blessing and encouraging people in the church, they started calling him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Barnabas, you're such, we're going to call you Barnabas. You're such an encouragement. A little nickname. What a great spiritual gift to be an encourager. Many of you are Barnabases. You have the gift of encouragement. You look for ways to help. You pitch in and help with a move. Or you see a financial need and you give an extra gift. Or you seek out people in the church and make them feel at home and and wanted and loved. Or you express something that you appreciate in in a teaching or about the worship. It's encouraging. I want to be a better Barnabas. And when I think about what this looks like, it's that, it's that thoughtfulness in writing a letter or stopping by with a meal or simply telling someone, in, instead of telling someone you're going to pray for them, stopping and praying right then and there. It's telling someone at church, I'm so glad you're here. There are so many ways that we can encourage each other. And the goal keeps coming back to verse 32. To be of one heart and soul. Seeking to love and serve and encourage others. It's a good Christmas message, isn't it? One that should be true of us in July. So Luke gives us this positive example of Barnabas who who sold the field that belonged to him, bringing the money and laying it at the apostles' feet. And then chapter 5 begins with a similar story, but it's a contrast. Both men laid money at the feet of the apostles. One was an encouragement and the other was a hypocrite. One was produced by the Spirit The other was by Satan. And beginning with verse 3, Peter speaks of three concerns. I just want to mention these three concerns that Peter has when he's speaking to Ananias. First, least important of all, is that Peter teaches the right of private property. Look at verse 4. Peter asks, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? The land rightly belonged to him, to them. It was theirs to have or to sell. And the money was theirs to keep or to give. In fact, if they were, think about it, if if Ananias and Sapphira, if they were just honest from the start, if they said, you know, we're going to give half, And they gave half. Great. 
that wasn't the, the that wasn't the the problem was they lied. They wanted to look all big and impressive. And they kept and they lied about what they gave. Personal property wasn't something new. Peter's not creating something new here. It was a right that already existed in the Old Testament. We see it in the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or his ox or donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. If a person does not have the right to personal property, then it's not stealing for someone else to take it. But if a person owns it, then taking it is wrong. This is what Peter recognizes. You have the right to it. You didn't have to sell it. And after you sold it, you didn't have to give it. The problem wasn't that they didn't give it all. It was that they pretended to give it all. It was the hypocrisy. It was the lying. And how this affected the unity, that that unity that we're after of the church. How is it going to affect the church? That is so precious to God. Precious enough to kill them. So not only does Peter acknowledge the right to personal property, but as we read through Acts and the, the rest of the New Testament, what we see are Christians who still own homes because they're opening them for hospitality, for a meal, for worship. The radical generosity that we see in the early church is not some new requirement It's a Christ-like response to a particular need. The second point that Peter makes concerns Satan's role. He has a role in this. And we have to be careful. We don't want to just have this attitude of, you know, the devil made me do it when I got enough sin nature of my own. But then we also don't want to ignore a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We also need to keep in mind that, that Satan is not like God. He is not omnipresent. He is not all-knowing. You have probably never encountered Satan. We are under spiritual attack by fallen angels, by his demons. But we're probably not big on the scale of importance. But Satan's real. So I want to, I want, there's a balance there, right? We don't want to ignore Satan and his activity through spiritual warfare through his demons it's a real thing uh we don't want to excuse ourselves and our own sin we don't want to we don't want to give satan too much credit we don't want to ignore him either but peter points out well think of it the church is in one place it's in jerusalem this is this is this is all the attention is there so of course satan's going to be there and he's going to attack that and peter says uh, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? He's speaking as a mouthpiece of God, as an apostle who writes scripture. So he's not just an expression that he's using, it's a reality. Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Satan hates the witness of Jesus. Already, Satan has brought about persecution so he he's attacking the church from outside and now what's this it's a it's an attack from within 
He wants to either scatter them, like the disciples scattered in fear of persecution when Jesus was crucified. He wants, he wants the church to react in that way, to, to just scatter because of the persecution. He wants to either scatter them or wreck their unity. Cause the watching world to say, what a bunch of hypocrites. You never hear that today, right? What a bunch of hypocrites the church is. God gives them boldness to face the persecution. Not, not fearing the world, but trusting God. And the fear of God is realized as he strikes Ananias and Sapphira dead. Just like Nadab and Abihu. Just like Uzzah. God makes it clear that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Serious consequences because of a serious work. The church is his, and it is to be holy, set apart, different, because it is for the glory of Christ and his gospel. It's not hard to imagine the strategy of Satan taking this beautiful response of generosity and encouraging the two things that best characterize him, pride and lying, the father of lies. Ananias, he may have said, look at how everyone loves and admires Barnabas, calling him the encourager, appreciating his big gift to the church. Maybe, maybe they'll give you a gold plate on a pew if you give a big gift. But really, you don't need to give it all. Nobody said you had to. But if you tell them you did, wow, they're going to think you're something. Pride lying. I wonder if Peter had this incident in mind when he wrote, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. It's an important warning because Satan is real and he hates the church then and he hates the church now. So when we give towards missions, he hates it. When you turned in your Christmas shoe boxes, he hates it. When we devote ourselves to prayer and loving one another and encouraging the study of God's word and groups that serve at the gospel mission or anything that glorifies Christ, we should expect a reaction to this. We should expect spiritual warfare, shouldn't we? If not, then what are we doing? Anything? So we should expect spiritual warfare because Satan hates this. And, you know, I've seen spiritual warfare over the years. And here's, here's what that spiritual warfare has consistently looked like over the years. One word, division. That's what he wants. It can happen with genuine believers wanting good things, wanting it at the expense. But here's, this is the problem. Wanting it at the expense of unity and grace and maybe humbly considering the other side of the story. And Satan wants those sides. When there's an offense, when you've been hurt, when you disagree, he wants you to be bitter and not forbearing. He wants gossip 
and sides and not humble reconciliation. He wants, he wants pride and division. He wants to disrupt great grace and to turn us from what we should be, which is a unified, gracious, loving church. That, that first century church, we all it's beautiful. And then Satan used a good thing, a financial gift, to bring about chaos. That was his aim anyway. So what do we do? If we're an effective church, we will be under attack. And Satan is stronger than we are. What do we do? James gives us an answer. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's an important order to this. If you try to resist the devil without first submitting to God, you're going to get run over. Because the devil is more powerful than you are. First, we need to submit ourselves to God. We need his strength. It's only because of God's strength that the devil flees. So how do we do this? How do we submit ourselves to God? Well, Jesus is a good example. In his humanity, he grew weak and weary, and he submitted himself to the Father through prayer. Jesus loved to pray. You ever think about that? Jesus, who is deity, prayed, which speaks of he's truly God and he's truly man. Tired and weak in the boat, asleep, needing to get away from the crowd, go up on the mountain and pray. What a great example. Jesus submitted himself in becoming a man, and we see the submission to the Father in his prayer life. And like him, we submit our circumstances, our very lives to God as we cast our cares upon God in prayer and seek his will in our lives. Praying is, is an act of dependence, submitting to, trusting the one who is sovereign over all, like knowing that he cares for us. Jesus was devoted to prayer. The early church was devoted to prayer. And in order to submit ourselves to God, we need to recognize who we are, who he is, and have devoted lives of prayer. Another devotion we see, both in Christ and in the early church, is a devotion to God's word. How can we submit to God if we don't know his will? And how do we know his will apart from the scriptures? Nothing will ever... Okay, you might be thinking, Pastor Brian, how often do you just give that answer, prayer and scripture, prayer and scripture, prayer and scripture, get used to it. There's nothing better. There's nothing that we neglect more than prayer and scripture. There's no new thing. There's nothing that compares to this. Prayer and scripture. Nothing will ever replace, nothing will ever surpass these earthly blessings of prayer and the study of the Bible. This is how we submit to God. 
It's how Jesus faced Satan during his temptation. Knowing scripture, knowing God's will, being submitted to it. Satan's no dummy. Many of his temptations, they're going to sound right. They're going to sound good. Like, you know, Jesus, you should prove that you're the Messiah. You know that God has promised to protect you, right? So if you jump from the temple, God's going to protect you. You should trust him. Don't you trust your father, Jesus? But Jesus knew scripture. And he replied, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. You know, Jesus, you must be starving this 40-day fast. You have the, the power to turn these stones into bread. You should, you know, it's good to take care of yourself. Body's the temple, right? Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when people in the church are tempted to divide over things that seem right, and seem important, it'd be good to remember a primary concern that's stated over and over and over again in our New Testaments, maintain unity. If we want to be anything like the positive example of the early church, seek unity. Be humble. Bear with one another. You're going to get your feelings are you going to be offended you're going to think that person's annoying we're human we're sinful there's no better place for your sanctification than here around people that's why you need to gather there's not much sanctification that happens when you just do your own thing spiritual but not religious i'm just me and god up on the mountain <laughs> you need people to annoy you <laughs> so that you can practice patience and unity and forbearance. You need to forgive. All of these things. Be like Jesus is towards you. Be like Jesus is towards you. When we're unforgiving, when we're harsh, it's not Jesus. Here's how Paul put it in Ephesians 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And when the world sees this, they marvel. It's a witness. But when they don't, what do you hear? What a bunch of hypocrites. They talk about love and forgiveness, but look at them. We need to submit ourselves to God's will for his church. To do Ephesians 4 by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we do, Satan flees. And the church will grow in unity, grow in its witness for the gospel. So Peter has something to say about personal property. He has something to say about spiritual warfare. Lastly, most importantly, he points out the seriousness of our sin. And it's obvious when bodies are carried away. And the fact is, it's what we all deserve. Because our sin is not simply against another person, it's ultimately against God. 
Peter says, you have not lied to man, but to God. Yes, sin has a terrible effect on people, but ultimately it's about God. It's about the witness of Christ. And we wrongly minimize our bad actions saying, eh, it doesn't really matter. It's just a little sin. Not as bad as that person. Anyway, hey, I'm forgiven. It's as if we think, yeah, God can handle it. He can take a little of my sin. It's mostly the people that I need to worry about and how it affects me and my relationship. But Peter doesn't emphasize that they lied to him. He didn't emphasize that he lied that they lied to the apostles or to the church. No, he emphasizes they lied to God. A little side note here. This is a good passage in developing a right view of the doctrine of the Trinity. Because Peter not only calls the Holy Spirit God, but he shows that the Holy Spirit is not an it or a force. He is a person, and only people can be lied to. He has personality. Back on. Sin is serious. It's ultimately against God. So if we find ourselves minimizing sin, I ran across a great quote from C.S. Lewis. Consider this. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all of your innumerable choices All your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with self, or else into one that is in a state of war. War with and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Wish he'd just come out and say what he really means. That's powerful. The church is beautiful. It's a beautiful creation of God. And if you've been saved, then you've been saved into Christ's church. This is his plan. This is his design. This is his will for you. So use what God has given you for the sake of glorifying him in his church. That the world might notice and say, look at how they love one another. That must be from God. And if we're to submit to God so that the devil will flee, then we can only do so within his church. For God tells us to not forsake the gathering of believers. Submission to God means submission to his design of a people who are together, devoted to prayer and the Bible and a deep fellowship of worship. May God bless our church, not only with great grace, 
but great fear, knowing that God is unchanging in his mercy toward us and that he is holy, 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 worthy of our spiritual worship. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. What an exciting truth this is. For our hope is in you. And we can have absolute assurance in your promises because of who you are. Lord, during this Advent season, give us opportunities to show the love of Christ. Give us great grace. Make us mindful of your great love in sending your son and his humility in becoming a baby, living a perfect life of obedience to you, dying the death that we deserve so that all who have faith in him might be saved. The celebration of Christmas is the celebration of the greatest gift, one that will not fade in its significance and joy. So use us, Lord. Use your church to make this known, especially in the celebration of the coming of Jesus. We pray in his great name. Amen.